You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Scott Kirby, CEO since May of 2020 of United Airlines. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. Scott came into this position after serving as president of United Airlines from 2016 to 2020, and in the same position at American Airlines from 2013 to 16, and US Air 2006 to 13. This has been a really brutal year, 2020. I know I saw in the press accounts First nine months of the year, 8.2 billion losses. It's been a crisis, a Depression-era wartime crisis, not just for international travel in the airline industry, but certainly it's hit you really brutally hard. You've been pretty frank in describing the year as we entered 2021 as the end of the beginning. Can you just give us a quick snapshot into the state of the industry in your view and how deep and long-lasting is the damage likely to be? Well, it was devastating as we started the coronavirus in March of this year. And our revenues at one point were down 98.5%. They're still down 70%. For some context, the worst thing financially that happened in the history of aviation was 9-11, of course. And we had two months with revenues down 40%. And by the time we were 10 months into it, you know, the revenues were down 10%. We are 10 months into this, and it is still twice as bad as the worst month that happened after 9-11 from a financial perspective. It's also been devastating to our employees to all of society, but we all know people and have lost people as we have gone through this. As bad as it has been financially, I'm really proud of the rapid response on safety, health, financials that's happened at United. And we did say at the end of our last earnings quarter, use the old Winston Churchill quote, perhaps this is the end of the beginning. We do think we see the light at the end of the tunnel with vaccines. We may talk about the timing. We still think it's a little ways away before the world kind of gets back to normalcy. But we can see the light at the end of the tunnel and have confidence that we'll get through to the other side. The exact timing is still TBD, whether it's a few months from now or later in the year. But we are confident in the long term. Can you say a bit about the roller coaster in terms of COVID-19 emergency stimulus money? I mean, in that first package from CARES Act of the $25 billion for the industry, you were able to keep your employees employed up until the end of September. And then you had to furlough, I think, 13,000, if I recall correctly, out of an industry total of like 32,000. Then we got to the end of the year and those those folks were suffering. And then we had the new package come forward, which runs through March. And now we've got a new negotiation going forward. What is it like living in this kind of whiplash? You know, first, what I'd say is it was an amazing bipartisan response to pass the first CARES Act. That really saved the economy from what I think would have been a depression had had we not done that. It was important not just for aviation, but for the overall economy. And we're gratified that aviation has been one of the most bipartisan and as close to unanimity, I think, as you can get in Washington, broad base support for aviation. And I think that's because people recognize that we are a critical enabler for the rest of the economy. And 
while COVID has shut down a lot of the activities that people travel for, whether it's going to Disneyland or going to business meetings or conventions, that will ultimately come back. I hope next year that we're there in Washington, D.C. in person with you for these events. And it will ultimately come back. And keeping the airline infrastructure in place is really, I think, you know, why aviation has been able to have such broad bipartisan support. It's been tough on our people, you know, as we went through all of this, but in a world where, you know, our revenues are are down 70% still, to be able to keep the vast majority of our people employed has been important. The government support has also been important because it gave us the time to go find private market capital. And we've raised about $26 billion since this all started. Scott, I think the thing that everybody wants to know now is with the arrival of these new variants, we've, you know, seem to have entered the era of an ongoing coronavirus pandemic, not unlike, you know, seasonal flu. How are you thinking about this in the long term? And, you know, what is your sense of the recovery of your industry, given that this is what we're now facing? Well, it still remains to be determined how the variants are going to actually impact the course of the coronavirus. And while it's an incremental risk, you know, my base case assumption is that the vaccines are going to remain largely effective against the coronavirus. It mutates less quickly than influenza. There are a number of differences between COVID and influenza. And while it does mutate, it appears from the initial data, at least, that the vaccines are likely to still remain pretty effective against it. One of the, I think, points that very few people talk about that I've been worried about for months is, you know, our willingness to kind of let the virus escalate to these astronomical levels of, you know, a couple hundred thousand plus cases per day is not only tragic in the short term for what it means for lives and hospitalizations, but we are giving the virus a large playing field upon which to mutate and for variants to either become more deadly, more transmissible, or to evade the vaccine. So we are worried about it. The faster we can get vaccines rolled out and reach herd immunity, we'll also shrink the available pool where the coronavirus can mutate. So it's really critical that we get the vaccine rolled out as quickly as possible. And tell us a little bit about what you all are doing to help with that rollout, because I know that you've been you know, pretty instrumental in helping move vaccine around the country. Yeah, we're proud of the small role that we've played. The real heroes, of course, in this are the scientists and the medical researchers who've done so much to develop vaccines in rapid time, but also, frankly, the pharmaceutical companies who for the last two decades have been investing in new technology that allowed them to quickly roll out vaccines that simply wouldn't have been possible 10 or 20 years ago. But we were the first airline that I know of actually to begin carrying vaccine back into the United States. We've also carried it to other locations around the world. And really, our team started back in the kind of May-June timeframe working on the requirements to be able to carry cold chain, to be able to carry enough dry ice on airplane that we could fill the belly of an airplane with COVID vaccines. And because of that, I think we're the only commercial passenger airline that did that. Um, and so we're carrying the vast majority of on, that's being carried on commercial airlines. But that really is because our team started months earlier to get prepared. And, and we've been honored to play our small role in the distribution of, of COVID vaccines around the world. What do you think it's going to take to get people truly confident in flying again? Do you think it's just reaching that threshold that 
Tony Fauci is talking about 85% of us vaccinated, you know, some sense of normality in the fall. Do you think that that's the threshold we're looking at for the kind of travel that's going to put your business back on track? Well, I've started saying, I get that question a lot from our employees. And what I've started saying to them is at the point in time that you are allowed and feel comfortable basically anywhere in the country, going back into a restaurant at 100% seating capacity without a mask on is when our business will get back to normal. Because when we're back to doing that, people will feel comfortable going to business meetings. Broadway shows will be open again. Disneyland will be open again. And when we're comfortable doing that is when it will happen. And, you know, I don't know if that's 85%, but that's the easier way for me to think about it is when we're comfortable going back to restaurants at 100%, the reasons for travel all exist again, and I think there'll be large pent-up demand. I happen to think that happens later this year, but you know, whenever it happens, we certainly look forward to it and confident that it ultimately is going to happen. So how do you keep morale up until then, and how do you hold on until then? One of the things most amazing to me as we've gone through this unprecedented crisis is our employee morale is the highest it's ever been when we do employee surveys and our customer service scores are off the charts high, which is pretty remarkable. You know, I think our employees, one, you know, after in March flying airplanes with four or five people on board was a shocking experience that emphasized in a way to them the importance of the customer. And, you know, I would don't want to say that we took it for granted or that anyone took it for granted, but it certainly emphasized how important the customer was. And our employees are also proud that United has taken a leadership position. You know, they recognize that this was outside of our control as a company and none of the 100,000 people of United could do anything about it. But because we've led on health and safety, digital applications, carrying vaccines around the world, our cargo operations, financing operations, you know, there's pride. And I increasingly view my job as, one, making our employees feel proud. And if I do that... They're going to do whatever it takes to make sure our customers like us. Um, And that's really what my job is about. Scott, can I get back to like what the flying experience and the return to flying experience is going to look like? You know, there have been, there's been a sharp uptick in reported episodes of exposure in flying, something like 4,000 last year. We don't know a lot of detail on this, but it sort of implies that when you have a saturated environment like we have in the United States, the risk factors are different. And I mean, my daughter flies and she calculates the risk. She times things. She's very, very cautious and careful. Do you think if, if we're heading into a period where the coronavirus is more like seasonal flu, people may be vaccinated up to a certain level, but it's still out there. Are we going to have a different risk tolerance among passengers, do you think? So the first thing I would say is the an airplane is is literally the safest environment of anywhere you go around other people. And that is all the safety protocols we have, the mask requirements. But more than anything, it's because an airplane is the air is being refiltered every two to three minutes through HEPA grade filters. Fifty percent of the air is coming fresh from the outside, 50 percent through HEPA grade filters, even a hospital. It has HEPA grade filters, but the air is being filtered every 20 to 30 minutes. There literally is nowhere that you're as safe as when you're on an airplane. United led a study in partnership with DARPA to demonstrate it that I think their conclusion was you needed to fly consecutively for 54 hours 
to meet your minimum threshold of catching coronavirus, even if you were sitting right next to, to someone. An airplane is an incredibly safe environment. The issue, though, is everything else that's going to happen in society. And my guess is that as a society, we can already see it. We're getting more comfortable, whether we should or not is an open question, but with the risk as we open up more. And if this does become like the flu, the combination of better treatment, all of the safety measures that we take on board airplanes, the wearing of masks, means that we'll have a gradual recovery uh, in demand. Although I think my base case is that we're going to actually be able to largely put coronavirus in the rearview mirror and hit an inflection point, or the world gets back to feeling a whole lot more like it did normally. And that's really a confidence in the efficacy of vaccines, and that vaccines are going to be more successful than they are against influenza. Scott, I got to ask you, though, when you have stats like that from, you know, a study that you and DARPA did, and, you know, we've heard repeatedly that the airplane is the safest place to be, you know, HEPA filters, fresh air, all that. People don't seem to believe it. And doctors are cautioning their patients, don't fly. And, you know, especially patients that might be compromised in some way, maybe they they're a certain age, they have some medical precondition, something like that. Why is there this notion that flying is not safe? I mean, you know, some of my friends say, oh, get on a plane. It's fine. It's easy. You know, you'll have no problem. Others say, you know, you got to be crazy to spend hours. What is the, the problem that we're facing with this? First, I'd say far, far more people recognize that flying is safe than did a few months ago. Uh, but there are still some that don't. And, you know, a lot of ways, I think they just don't know. They haven't followed the science. And I think we also do a dis- disservice when we have these heuristics, like a six-feet distancing rule. Uh, a six-foot distancing rule is really a proxy for viral load. But if you're in strong airflow, if you're standing on the beach six feet away from someone, you're not going to get coronavirus. If you're on an airplane, and you're sitting next to them, the chances are tiny that you're going to get coronavirus because of airflow. But if you're in a building and you're 15 feet away from somebody with poor airflow, which is what most buildings are, you're much more at risk. And so we use that six-foot heuristic, and it became sort of the way to think about things that people didn't have a full appreciation for airflow. If you actually follow the science, and I do a lot of following the science, airflow is by far the most important thing for limiting exposure to, to coronavirus. Um, and aircraft are remarkably good. That message is getting out, but it's not universal because people are just stuck in thinking about the six-foot heuristic, I believe. Scott, tell us a little bit about the pre-flight testing and the passport that you've been involved in developing. And on the passport side, you're working with, I think, four other airlines and with the World Economic Forum. And how does that all tie together with what the WHO needs to do in terms of blessing? something like this? We're working with a number of partners, other airlines. We've talked to the CDC. We've talked to the administration, governments around the world, uh, technology partners. We think ultimately the way we're going to be able to start opening up international borders is a vaccine passport. So if I can demonstrate that I have been vaccinated, then I can be allowed to go into another country. It's not just about, though, opening borders. You know, our vision is that while airlines might be the first place to use vaccine passports. It's the way to open up your local restaurant because if everyone has a QR code on their phone and you can walk in and demonstrate that you've been vaccinated, that's the way the restaurant can open at 100% capacity. Or going to a Broadway play, 
You know, you can go to a Broadway play and they can reopen, uh, but everyone needs to have been vaccinated or perhaps tested, but probably vaccinated. Uh, so we believe that vaccine passports are a key, not just to reopening borders and travel, but really to reopening the segments of the economy that have been closed because of coronavirus. But for this to move forward, you're going to have to have some sort of engagement with the World Health Organization, right? They own the yellow card. Yeah, you know, some form of of government regulatory apparatus and support. It's already starting to happen, by the way, where there's not government intervention. There's a number of sporting leagues that are using vaccine passports from clear as a way to get in or testing as a way to get in. So the template exists, but getting the regulatory apparatus to catch up with that and authorize it is the only way ultimately it's going to work. I mean, if I can use my Ravens tickets next year with a passport, I'm all in. Right. And and that's and by the way, the other thing that's great about that is if you were a skeptic on vaccines and that's the way you get to go to the Ravens games and that's the way you get to go to a restaurant and that's the way you get to take your family to Disneyland, maybe that helps you overcome your skepticism. For sure. It really it really puts you in a position where you got to make a, a serious decision. Yeah. And look, I think this is the key to reopening the parts of the economy that have been closed. And it's not just about aviation. It's about opening up huge parts of the economy, which you know, we've got this barbell economy, some things that are going gangbusters if you're selling goods online or if you're in home refurbishments, and then other parts that are in the worst depression that's ever happened. Your local restaurants, it's not just aviation, anything in travel, tourism, that requires us to be around people. And this is the key, I think, to re-up opening those businesses and those parts of the economy. Scott, what's your position right now in terms of vaccination among your employees? Well, I told our employees a week or two ago that safety has been throughout our number one priority. And I am confident in the safety of vaccines. The worst thing that I've had to do as CEO is the letters I've written to the families every time one of our employees is lost to coronavirus. And I don't want to have to do that anymore. And it's the right thing to do, I believe to make vaccines mandatory. I also recognize there's two hurdles we have to overcome. One, the logistics, we have to have vaccines available if we're going to do that. Uh, and two, United Airlines can't be the only company that requires it, or the, I think the public pushback would be enough that we couldn't sustain that. But I've told them that to the extent that others are willing and begin to mandate vaccines, we will be an early leader in, in mandating vaccines and so while it's not certain that we're going to mandate vaccines, it's a reasonably high probability. Thank you. After January 6th, you know, you had these really ugly incidents of abusive rioters, abusive rioters on your planes and other planes and a threat of violence. And this this reality is not going away. What is your thinking on how to manage this? And the mask requirement, now we have the president's new mask requirement, which I assume you welcome, and it helps you in your job, but it may also lead to more confrontations in travel. Well, what I would say is 99.999% of our customers appreciate our safety policies, our mask requirements, behave civilly and appropriately on board aircraft. Our employees, particularly our flight attendants and gate agents who are at the tip of the sphere on customer interactions, 
uh, have done an incredible job throughout this at de-escalating situations and not letting any situations get to the point of violence or really blow up. We have wound up banning about a thousand customers. We were the first airline to require masks back in early April. And our policy became that if you refuse to wear a mask, we would ban you from flying at least as long as the mask requirements were in place. So we've got about a thousand customers that are not allowed to, to fly on United. But I think our team has done a great job. And, you know, again, the vast majority of our customers appreciate it, and our team has done a pretty good job of de-escalating. Appreciate the support from the federal government on mass policies, but it really honestly doesn't change anything at United because we already had policies that were at least that strict in place. It will help in the airports now, I think, because the government's going to require it in airports and spaces that we couldn't require it. But you know, our team has done a pretty good job at de-escalating those issues. With this new level of anger and you know, what we've seen with the violence, have you had to, you know, put in new training and procedures with your employees to, in, in order to deal with some of these incidents? Well, one, we talk about it a lot. Myself and the president of United Airlines, Brett Hart, sent a note, you know, I think on January 7th uh, to our employees addressing what had happened. Uh, because we have a hub at Dulles, I, I think we have more flying to and from the Washington, D.C. metro area than any other airline. And our team did a great job. We took a lot of kind of tactical steps in the couple of weeks following, you know, things like not allowing uh, firearms to be checked in, in baggage uh, to Washington, D.C. And we had additional support and staff onboard airplanes. We had really close contact with the TSA and the Department of Homeland Security, who are wonderful, by the way, and the FAA and being very responsive. So we had a lot of tactical steps that were in place to, you know, prophylactically be able to, to respond to any situations. But after kind of the return of travel post the January 6th event, where there was one day where, you know, it, there were some challenging situations, post that, you know, it's been back to largely business as normal. That's good to hear. I mean, we seem to have a pretty serious problem in the country, though, with rising extremism. And clearly, the Biden administration is taking a look at it. I'm, I'm hoping you're not going to have too much exposure to it. Yeah, I hope not. And look, I'll give you the optimist view on it, that as awful as the January 6th situation was, I hope and I actually believe that it was bad enough that it caused even people who might have been closer to that political perspective to say, wait a second, that was too much. And we need to pull back towards civility um, and what makes America great and being able to listen to each other and disagree respectfully, but behave civilly with one another. And, and look, we did have a couple of days where we had you know, some incidents that we were worried that were going to escalate right after that. But as I said, it's gotten largely back to normal um, since then. So I, I hope the mood of 99.99% of the country is better than it was before. You know, it's that 0.001% that, of course, we still have to worry about. Let's talk a little bit about your decarbonization plans. I know you've joined in with Carbon Engineering Occidental. You've become a partner in 1.5%. Tell us a little bit about this. This is quite unusual. Yeah. So this is a personal passion of mine, has been since I was in college. And it's been clear to me for a long time that 
the only way we're going to really solve the problem is to be honest about the scale of the problem and what we need to do to solve it. And mankind is emitting 4,000 times as much carbon per year uh, as we did in the pre-industrial era. That's significant because what so many corporations are doing today is relying on what they call carbon offsets. Think of that as planting trees or agreeing to not cut down trees. And while some of those projects are nice, there's no way we can plant 4,000 times as many trees on the planet every year as existed in the pre-industrial era. And so traditional carbon offsets are just a siren song that lets you paper over the real problem, lets you feel good that you're doing something, but they really don't make a difference. The way we can really make a difference is taking carbon out of the atmosphere and permanently sequestering it underground. And so at United, we were pleased to be able to partner with Occidental and 1.5 in what will be the world's largest carbon sequestration project. And it will take carbon directly out of the atmosphere, equivalent to planting 40 million trees per year. And what's great about this is it's essentially infinitely scalable. We could build these programs around the world to be as big as we want, to take as much carbon out of the air as we need to. And without direct air capture and carbon sequestration, we're just not going to solve climate change. The math simply doesn't work without direct air capture and carbon sequestration. Well, the scale of need is pretty vast, right? I mean, United is generating, I think it's over 34 million tons per year of carbon. And, you know, and the sequestration is expensive, right? It's like a hundred bucks a ton. So you do that math, that's a, that's a big price tag to get yeah. to, to get to scale. And you got to have the other industries, I would think, coming in with you. I know there's some interest in talking about biofuels as well, but you might add a bit on that. But I think we're the airline industry is going to remain a deeply carbon industry, right? And so this sequestration strategy is quite intriguing. Yeah. And while direct air capture and sequestration is expensive today, part of the point of what we're trying to do is drive it exponentially down the cost curve. If you went back 20 years, People said solar and wind power were vastly uneconomic and yeah. not possible. And today it's economic and can compete effectively and in some cases is lower cost than traditional carbon fuels, even without government support. And I hope the same thing can happen and believe it can with direct air capture and sequestration. That's why it's important to start now, because the point is there are parts of the economy that are never going to be zero carbon. We are going to have parts of the economy that still require energy density of fuel, for example, um, on board an airplane. And so finding a way to permanently sequester that carbon that gets emitted is the only way we ultimately get to an answer. You also talk about biofuels. Another important part of the uh, solution ultimately for fuels is biofuels for aviation and for other industries as well. We've been a leader in biofuels as well at United. You know, coming into the year, we represented over 50% of the world's total world aviation commitment to biofuels because we invested early in, in partnerships. The issue with biofuels is we need them to be scalable. And there's a lot of ideas for feedstock. But we need feedstock that is scalable and doesn't take arable land out of service, you know, essentially food production out of service. And that's really the issue with biofuels. Yes, that's great. Well, you think that the costs on the carbon capture technology can come down fairly rapidly? In other words, we'll be talking some fraction of the current $100 a ton within the next five years? I don't know if it'll happen in the next five years, but I think ultimately it will happen. 
And it's important that it be, it's going to need government support, I think, you know, a combination of carrots and sticks. But if we can have an honest conversation about how do you get the math to add up on climate change? And I think you'll find that if you do the math, it doesn't add up without sequestration. Then it starts to get a lot easier to invest serious resources in making carbon sequestration more and more economic. Uh, And once we do that, we can take carbon to whatever we want it to, because that's the only thing that is really infinitely scalable. Really interesting. We started at the top end about what a brutal year this has been. The projected loss for the industry I was reading from IATA for last year and this year, $157 billion loss to the industry. That's just staggering thing to imagine. So against that stark backdrop, what makes you optimistic? What gives you the greatest hope and optimism in this period? Well, I've been proud of all that we have done at United, that the 100,000 people have done at United to get through the crisis. And we're confident in the ultimate recovery. You know, we coming into this said we're about connecting people and uniting the world. And it's more clear than ever that we all crave and miss the human contact. Myself and my family travel all over the world and we miss it intensely. Miss not being able to do events like this in person. And we're social creatures um, and we're better as a people and, a, and as mankind if we can get together and travel. So we have high confidence in the ultimate recovery in travel and the kind of changes that we've made going through the crisis, I think are going to serve us well on the other side. You know, I've mentioned earlier that we've had off the scale increases in how our net promoter scores and how our customers feel about flying United. And that's something that we intend to be focused on uh, on the other side and to maintain on the other side so that the flying experience will not only be safe, it will feel a hundred times better than it did before. And so while it's been a crisis of unprecedented proportions and it's not over yet, by the time we get to herd immunity, by the time we get to critical mass on vaccines, we're pretty confident that the recovery is going to to be strong. There's lots of pent-up demand for travel, and we'll be even more connected as a global world than we were before. Scott, I have to actually fly for the first time this week, and I'm going to go tell my wife to go book us on United to Florida. So we're, we're going to do that. And I really can't wait. And I've been telling one of your most trusted employees that I cannot wait to get on that direct flight from Dulles to Tel Aviv on United. And all the best to you. Thank you. And I uh, look forward to having you back flying, you and, and everyone else. And we're excited to have the new Dulles Tel Aviv. Thank you. Thank you both. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Bye-bye.